Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised this podcast contains the names of people who have died. Welcome to Australia on This Day, I'm Michael Adams and today we're going back to the 15th of July 1968. That was the day that Jim Bowler, an Australian geologist, made a discovery that literally rewrote our history books. I'm very pleased to tell you that Jim was good enough to give me an interview and you'll hear that in a moment. But first, a little background. Jim Bowler was born in 1930 and raised on an onion farm in Leangatha in South Gippsland, Victoria. Growing up in the Great Depression, Jim helped his family work the soil. Then, as a teenager, he went to a Jesuit seminary to train to be a missionary. Jim lasted nine months before deciding that the priesthood wasn't for him. He returned to the farm where his father gave him a few acres on which he grew potatoes for the next decade. During this time, Jim also educated himself via correspondence, and in the mid-1950s, he began his formal tertiary education and extended his knowledge of the land beneath his feet by studying geology at the University of Melbourne. Jim Bowler graduated in 1958. He got a master's degree three years later, and then in 1965, moved to Canberra to become a research fellow at the Australian National University. Jim's area of interest was climate change and how it had shaped the Australian continent, particularly with respect to the vast, now dry lakes of the outback. In 1968, Jim was in western New South Wales. He was studying eroded dune formations around the edges of an ancient lake at Balandra. At this time, it was believed that the human habitation of Australia had begun only 20,000 years ago, and that was based on evidence of Aboriginal occupation found far away in the north of the continent. What's also important to know is that through the 19th century and well into the 20th century, anthropologists, phrenologists and others thought Aborigines were primitive people who might prove to be the so-called missing link between apes and humans. This belief had led to a busy trade in robbing Aboriginal burial sites, particularly for skulls to be used in cranial profiling that might confirm this missing link theory. But 52 years ago today, on the ancient shores of what we now know as Lake Mungo, land traditionally owned by the Parkenti, Niampa and Matimati tribal groups, Geologist Jim Bowler was seeing archaeological evidence that would lead to two discoveries that had turned those notions and our history upside down. You hear a lot from me in this podcast as it is, so apart from a few questions, this episode is just Jim telling his story. A note, the Aboriginal women that Jim mentions are the late Alice Kelly, a pioneering elder, and Mary Pappan, also an elder, and both were advocates for the return to country of Mungo Lady and Mungo Man. Jim, what were you finding at Lake Mungo in terms of evidence of human habitation 
in these ancient dunes? My early days at Lake Bungo, uh, I found myself, I was mapping the shoreline of the lakes. Uh, there, were, there were beaches and gravel sands, uh, which I knew were the, the signal of the high lake level. So wa- walking along and mapping those uh, features, I kept coming across uh, flaked stones and uh, uh, where they should not be, and uh, and then freshwater shells sitting high on the dune where they could not have been uh, uh, transported naturally. So there was evidence that um, I was walking in the footsteps of people who'd been there a long time before me. How long are we talking? The age of the dunes, we knew, uh, was associated with the last cold glacial phase about 20,000 years ago. These shells were lying within the sediments of those dunes built 20,000 years ago. So that I knew immediately that this was evidence of very uh, of ancient occupation. And in 1968, what was the accepted view in terms of how long Indigenous people had inhabited the continent of Australia? Well, at that time, the work of Carmel Shearer in, uh, in, in the Northern Territory had established the ages of about, of about 20,000 years. But uh, I was uh, noticing shells well below the level of the 20,000-year dunes. So the, the, the evidence there was considerably older than 20,000 years. And it was, uh, that was the message I was taking that I took back to my colleagues in, um, in, in my archaeological colleagues in, in Canberra, um, where I was told politely that um, I was a geologist, I didn't really know uh, much about archaeology and that I should stick to my stones and leave the, uh, the evidence of archaeology to those who are better trained. I, I, I was, then I, I was even more determined to show that uh, there was evidence of people there much, much earlier. This was clearly evidence of habitation more than 25,000 years ago. Why were your colleagues so determined not to believe physical evidence? Oh, I think there was no there was no previous record of uh, of, 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 of that kind from that part of Australia, and it was older than I, I was sort of stepping back the age of human occupation. This was this was older than the evidence in the Northern Territory at that stage. So that um, now this uh, challenge to archaeology, coming from a non-archaeologist, coming from a, a geologist, uh, was. Uh, not greeted with a, with a great deal of uh, uh, excitement. But you were sure that you were right. Yes, I was satisfied that, uh, uh, and it was uh, uh, the the discovery uh, virtually by, by accident as it happened. As I was walking back from uh, recording uh, the presence of shells, um, to find uh, weathering out from a. a, a a block of soil, a block of ancient soil, soil carbonate, contained burnt bones. And burnt bones, that was the indication of human activity. Somebody had lit a fire and had, uh, there was a big ceremonial fire at that, at that place uh, with the, and these remnants of bones, which I thought at the time were probably of food, uh, were signaled to me the antiquity now was 
way beyond 20,000 years, and here it was sitting in clear definition of ancient human presence. So that was the evidence I took back to my archaeological colleagues, and even then, for a long term, it took nine months before I was able to encourage a team to come and uh, uh, evaluate this site specifically. And that, that occurred in early 1969. Um, and as uh, I, had, uh, I had deliberately left those bones undisturbed until it was evaluated. And that, that is precisely what happened. If you can just tell me what it was like 52 years ago today when you came across these bones. What was the day like? What were you thinking? What did you feel? Well, I was uh, 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 going about my normal geological business, uh, but it was a moment of great delight when I was able to identify that these burnt bones were emerging from what I called then uh, an oven, uh, an Aboriginal uh, uh, a, a, a site that was clearly uh, at, at that. Uh, developed at the hands of, 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 of people. Uh, the antiquity was quite secure because it was cemented into an ancient soil. The 20,000-year-old the, the dune had been stripped off the top and we're well back beyond 20,000 years. We were, we were in a, a time frame beyond uh, the accepted uh, period of human occupation. So I was uh, pretty chuffed uh, at finding those bones, but it took a long time, it took another nine months before they were actually determined as not just burnt bones of, 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 of a meal, but the bones of a, a, a human body, the cremation, which we now know of Mungo Lady. But that, so it took uh, nine months before the next stage of excitement really burst upon us. On that day, 52 years ago, did you think, wow, I have just rewritten history? There was clearly a sense that, yes, we had, this was an a new chapter in history, and it was complicated, uh, or perhaps uh, amplified, by the realisation that, that the Aboriginal people had endured uh, a century of... Uh, uh, in, in, in improper evaluation of their skeletal remains. The, uh, the Australian Aborigines particular, particularly were of, of interest to people like Thomas Huxley, uh, Darwin's, uh, Darwin's uh, bulldog, and he was analysing uh, Aboriginal skeletons to try and show that they were perhaps connected to Neanderthals. There was a, almost an industry amongst uh, university anatomists in Melbourne, Sydney, and ex the export of skeletons uh, from Australia to other parts of the world. Scandalous treatment of Aboriginal remains. And I was closely uh, I was aware of uh, a gentleman from my own environment near Leon Gatha, Murray Black, uh, who in, in, my, uh, in, in our uh, local town was known to be uh, the, a, a major collector of skeletons. He collected them by the truckload. So I had interviewed Murray Black and I had already uh, become aware of this, uh, 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 this 
totally unjust treatment of Aboriginal skeletons. So that was that was in the background of my mind. So when the Mungo Lady discovery came along, the this was the the, the first encounter with the, with the with the actual nature of the, with the human body of ancient Aboriginal people. The opportunity now to discover, you know, what they were like. Certainly not Neanderthals, but it took another nine months before Alan Thorne, my colleague, now deceased, uh, reconstructed the cranium of that, what we know now as Mungo Lady. And that cranium proved to be fully modern. The, the, the remains of a person just like us. That was mind-blowing. That was the end of all that industry of human biology trying to show that the ancient Aboriginal people was in some ways morphologically inferior. So previous so-called scientist grave robbers had been trying to demonstrate that Australian Aboriginal people were a missing link, correct? That's exactly the case. And uh, we have in the University of Melbourne and in Sydney, my uh, colleagues in those days, Professor uh, McIntosh, he was busily uh, collecting skeletons across the country uh, to evaluate um, th th that, that concept uh, so that the atmosphere in those days, the, the climate of uh, inquiry was still trying to explore the possibility that the early Australian occupants were a, an early Homo erectus uh, version of mankind. Mungo Lady changed all of that. So once Mungo Lady had been reconstructed by Alan Thorne and, and, and shown to be a modern human being, how did you feel about, and, and dated to approximately 42,000 years ago, how did you feel about her existence and then the discovery six years later that you made of Mungo Man? The, the, the cranium of Mungo Lady was once the, the site of a loving, uh, emotional, uh, fully human person, just like me, so that there is an immediate connection, uh, as quite distinct from the treatment of fossil bones. Of a fossil animal, diprotodon or a dinosaur, uh, they're entirely different. They're, 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 but it's the connection by shared consciousness Human remains uh, present us with a degree, with a, a connection between the observer and the observed. We have an, a relationship. So I immediately uh, realized in my humanity was shared by the, the bones or the uh, original occupants of, of those bones of Mungo Lady. And, and when the dating became clear, 42, 40 to 42,000 years, that, has occurred, that occurred 35,000 years before the patriarch Abraham. Abraham, the, the foundation figure of, of, of Jewish, Islam and Christianity. Um, Mungo Lady, and later the, the, the exciting exposure of Mungo Man, demonstrated that 35,000 years before any of those religions 
the people of Australia shared a relationship with the land. They shared a concept, an understanding of who they were in relationship with the land with which, in which they lived. And that's the same land that I was looking at. We shared the same lake, the same sand dune. As it were, we, we, we drew waters from the same well. The, our identity in consciousness was expanded by realization that we shared the same landscape, uh, the, same, the same very lake waters. So that was a, a connection which completely changed uh, my relationship with those objects of, of human remains no longer non-human they 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 came to life and of course when the when uh, the aboriginal elders uh, later became aware of how science had now was expanding the that real that concept of uh, of of their presence in the country that opened a new door between the elders, the first elders, uh, Alice Kelly, a uh, mutty mutty lady from Bal Ranald, who came, his voice was heard in the early 1980s when she became um, a representative uh, in the committee of, uh, advisory committee of the Lake Mungo National Park. Alice Kelly immediately identified with Mungo Lady and not only identified with, but she, Mungo Lady became almost a saintly figure in the, uh, in the eyes of, of Alice Kelly, a saintly figure, uh, a revered figure, because Mungo Lady returned, was never excavated, returned to the surface to, to tell us her story. Alice Kelly took that story to heart and she lived that continuity over 40,000 years with those early ancestral people uh, from whom she and other Aboriginal people now derive their identity. Jim, can I just ask, what was the significance of the way that Mungo Lady's bones had been buried and the significance of how Mungo Man's skeleton had been buried, and what did that tell us about who they were and who their community was? The ritual of Mungo Lady and the later the, the ritual of Mungo Man provided an entirely new picture of the cultural sophistication of, of those earliest Australians 40,000 years ago. None, none of us had ever imagined the degree of sophisticated ritual that was enacted in those burials. Mungo Lady uh, with a, a cremation, uh, the burning of the bones, uh, the, the fire, collection of the fire, uh, the community um, involvement in, in that exercise was, was more than matched by the ritual burial of Mungo Man, found just five years later. If you could just talk me through what happened that day and could you believe that you'd made a second discovery so close to where you discovered Mungo Lady? So the discovery a few years later of, of Mungo Man added an entirely new chapter. Mungo Man was found on one, one morning after heavy rain. I decided to uh, wander off and see 
if anything new had appeared at the surface, as often happens after heavy rain. And there, in the distance, I spotted a, a tip of, of white bone uh, emerging from the sand. When I brushed the sand away, it was clearly a part of a human cranium. And it was sitting there, in, not lying there, in position. Uh, only the tip of the cranium involved. I brushed away the sand, and there was the mandible, the teeth, the jawbone was there. So I immediately contacted my colleagues in Canberra, and they returned uh, very quickly, within two days, and carried out, uh, we call it an, an excavation, but it wasn't really an excavation in the true sense. It was merely the brushing away of the sand um, that remained uh, from after the top four or five metres of dune sand had been stripped away. Uh, here this skeleton was appearing at the surface. And to our surprise, we found a, a fully articulated human remains stretched out very carefully on a caref on a, 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 a grave cut into the sands of the Lake Mungo shoreline and carefully prepared, laid out carefully with uh, the, the full extended skeleton of what turned out to be uh, an, an, an adult male. Uh, a tall man about 170 centimetres and it was a surprise to us to find that in the excavation we found pellets of ochre of that iron oxide um, of, of great uh, treasure to Aboriginal people. The ochre for painting, for anointing, uh, for the definition of things sacred had been used to embalm or anoint the skeleton of this person in the grave. Um, that was a, uh, a shattering uh, discovery. There was no ochre in that landscape for uh, several hundred kilometres. It had to be imported by the community. It had to be uh, ground into a dust or a paste to be placed onto the, uh, onto the body. And, and that represented an extraordinary uh, ritual uh, of, a, of a kind uh, way beyond our imagination. And it was associated simultaneously with a large fireplace, uh, a fire located near the foot of the grave. Uh, so when we reconstruct the time of that event at 42,040 to 42,000 years ago, the people, the word had gone out. Someone, the man was dying. Uh, the ochre had been collected. The grave dug. The fire lit and the fireplace established. Um, the use of fire, that cleansing smoke, which is used in the uh, ritual ceremony of Aboriginal descendants to, the, to this very day, to, to realise that that ritual enacted out there 40,000 years ago, the equivalent of a sacred requiem in any cathedral across the world, there on the cathedral shores of the lake, that, that enacting, the, the grief, the mourning, and the recognition that there was something beyond death, that the use of the fire, the anointing by ochre, the representation that the, the connection with the lake, with the sand, with the 
the, the sea, the, 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 the landscape. These people were connected to that to that country. They were expressing their connection between the world they lived in and the departure of from life of this obviously eminent member of their community. So that ritual, and it's, it stands, remains a mystery to me today to, to realise that that happened here in Australia 40,000 years ago is almost still beyond my uh, imagination. Certainly it's, it's a, one of continuing challenge. I contemplate it frequently because that man, like me, I have now, I think we've, we've tried to restore the environment of, of, the, of the day. As it were, we've tried to, as it were, put flesh back on that man's bones. And in a sense, Mungo Man and Mungo Lady have come to life. Their spirit is seen in continuity with their Aboriginal descendants today. That's a matter for continued mystery and contemplation to me. When I look at Aboriginal people today, connect them back to those people, uh, uh, people just like us, 40,000 years ago, is, stands as a monumental mystery in this understanding in Australia of who we are, who they were, and, and how that affects how we stand in in, in, in collegiate association with their descendants today. So those rituals, Michael, are very pertinent to what's happening in Australia today. We've recently witnessed the great outpouring of, of the Black Lives Matter um, protest of the way in which Aboriginal people and dark people across the world have been treated, exploited by science, devastated by imperial conquest, stripped of their land, and uh, almost in many cases dehumanised. Now the Mungo lady, the Mungo people, stand in eminence to to demonstrate the falsity of that perception. They stand side by side with those protesters in the streets of Black Lives Matter. Now simultaneously. Those ancient lives matter. Not only did they matter, but they've, they've brought treasured elements to our understanding today. But also, essentially, we remember that they were, as it were, representative or were represented later by twenty to 30,000 people, men and women, who died on the same soil defending their land from against people like my ancestors who came and occupied this country and devastated the original people. So those rituals, Michael, are sim not just symbolically relevant, they have foundational meaning to the, uh, the present outpouring of uh, concern for the restoration of indigenous rights. That's an issue that we are now becoming more accustomed uh, to, to, to confront. So it's in that context, Michael, that I can say that those Mungo people helped provide a major step in the production of the new story that is awaited in Australia. We await that story of the past people 
to understand where we are in the present uh, dialogue with Aboriginal people today. Now, it was also very important to repatriate Mungo Lady and Mungo Man back to their country. Uh, how glad were you to see that happen in 1992 and 2017, respectively? Oh, that was a long-awaited um, healing process. Uh, that was one in which, uh, as, as it were, bonded the, uh, the links between the scientists like myself and the Aboriginal people who had protested at the injustice of the way they were treated, and they saw injustice in our removal of those bones. The repatriation of those bones was the healing moment when we joined together, we stood on the sand and celebrated the return home. There was a passion, there was weeping and, and a, a commitment to the future. That was a, a monumental moment in the, uh, uh, towards uh, a, 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 a completion of that whole story. But it's still, Michael, far from complete. Those bones, the, the bones of Mungo Lady and Mungo Man, there is still no resting place for them. They have been in the care of the traditional owners, uh, but, but they have been neglected entirely by the government and by bureaucratic management and the, the, both the state of New South Wales and the Commonwealth. Responsibility for World Heritage Management has been almost utterly neglected out there. The Aboriginal people have been left without support, without indication of the way forward. The, the dialogue between the Aboriginal traditional owners and the rest of the Australian community has not been happening. Uh, it has not been assisted by the bureaucratic management. That World Heritage Area has stood for seven, the last seven years entirely without any, uh, any structured management. It's only six months ago that a new chair has been appointed, but that, that chairmanship has been absent for the last seven, seven years. So the, that, the whole um, presence of the Lake Mungo and the Willandra Lakes World Heritage Area has fallen off the national radar screen. The, the educational agenda that the World Heritage Area has to deliver has yet to be um, made available to the Australian community. What, what do we risk losing without proper management of the World Heritage Area in terms of its preservation and in terms of educational opportunities? It, the, the, the educational dimension is, is, is of such scale. It's, it's the story of the land and the people. It's the story of the geology of the landscape in which people lived, uh, they managed and, and, and protected for now well beyond 40,000 years. The Mungo story, with the presence of the actual, uh, the reconstruction of the, of the actual people of Mungo Lady and Mungo Man, that provides the key, the keystone to the educational future of, of, of not only that area, but of what it means to be Australian. 
It is that conjunction of land and people, of the landscape and the story of their people, of people's occupancy, that forms the basis for the a, a new story of what it means to be Australian. That is now the next step. We need to, de to define the vision for that World Heritage Area. We have the, the opportunity of, of a new awareness in the wide Australian community of the need to build those connections, the cross-cultural connections between Western technological society and the Indigenous people who have cared for this country for so long. That is the that opportunity now is opening up for us. It's there in the Black Lives Matter movement. It's it's there in the the genuine concern for reconciliation. The the challenge now is to deliver to the Australian people the story of the Mungo people, the rich cultural reality of the ancient uh, Aboriginal Australians and their relationship to the uh, cultural, to, the, to their descendants today. Jim, just finally, do you think, I mean, in both instances, you discovered Mungo Lady and Mungo Man in almost serendipitous, well, they were serendipitous circumstances. Is there a feeling that they found you? Oh, look, that's a feeling that Mary Pappen has uh, beautifully expressed. Uh, she, she's alerted me to that, you know. Don't go around saying you found Mungo Lady, because that, that is, it's much better. It, it, is, it is more correct to say they found you. That's, that's Mary Pappen's view. So, look, I'm, you know, I'm sort of, sort of honoured to, um, you know, to accept that way, Michael. All right, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Lovely, okay. lovely talking to you. Righto, thanks, Michael. Good to, good, to, good, to, good to catch up with you. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.